You're listening to Motor Mouth with Andrew McCready and David Booth. I'm David Booth, and I'm the senior writer for Driving.ca. Officially called the proposed light-duty zero-emission vehicle regulations, by any other name, it's a ZEV mandate. Essentially, it will require that by 2035, all all light-duty passenger vehicles, that's cars, pickups, and SUVs to you and me, will have to put out no tailpipe emissions. Along the way, there are also targets. Uh, 60% of the vehicles sold by any manufacturer in 2030 will have to meet zero-emission vehicle standards, for instance, or they will face stiff penalties. So far, all the effort in this transition has been focused on electric vehicles. But are EVs the only solution to the automotive industry's greenhouse gas problems? Are all vehicles best turned green by batteries? Can hydrogen-powered fuel cell vehicles have an impact in our quest for greener automobiles? Can hydrogen be burned in an internal combustion engine and not emit carbon dioxide? And exactly what are synthetic fuels? The artificial gasoline that the European Union, to everyone's great surprise, recently approved that will allow internal combustion engines to be sold past 2035. Last, but most certainly not least, will we have enough clean and green electricity and the infrastructure to transmit it to support the cars of the future? To help us answer all these questions, again, the most pressing of this or any other generation, we're joined today by a truly august panel of experts. Stephen Beatty, Vice President Corporate of Toyota Canada, Francis Bradley, President and CEO of Electricity Canada, Daniel Breton, President and CEO of Electric Mobility Canada, and Carl Dooms, Manager of Politics and uh, Governmental Affairs for Porsche AG. Welcome, gentlemen, and thank you so much for joining us today. So, gentlemen, what a truly exciting time to be in the automotive industry. We are in the midst of the biggest revolution in mobility since the birth of the automobile. The road to zero emissions is hugely ambitious, and since we're only likely to get one chance at building an all-new infrastructure, we need to get it right. Daniel, I'm going to start with you, mainly because I think you may have had a little input into the proposed Canadian ZEV mandate. Why don't you walk us through it? What's the purpose of these new regs? What will be the rules and how will they be enforced? Uh, basically, can you give us the five-minute version of what this proposal means for Canada? Uh, thanks a lot, David. Uh, thank you for inviting me and uh, to have EMC have a voice in this conversation. Uh, well, first of all, I would like to uh, explain what a ZEV is, what a zero emission vehicle is, according to uh, the Californian government, the Canadian government. A ZEV is either a battery electric vehicle, a plug-in hybrid electric vehicle, or a hydrogen vehicle. So when you're talking about hydrogen technology, well, hydrogen cars are part of what we consider to be a ZEV. The question is, why do we need a ZEV mandate or a ZEV sales regulation program like the government uh, wants to call it? Well, first of all, it's lower to lower GHG emissions and increase zero emission vehicle supply. You have to keep in mind that in 2005, there was a voluntary agreement with car manufacturers to lower their GHG emissions. But because it was a voluntary agreement, we missed the target by 95%. I'm sure you've heard about that according to the International Energy Agency. Canada's light-duty vehicle fleet was dead last of any country in the world. 
for average fuel consumption at GHG emissions per kilometer driven. So for years, some OEMs, not all of them, uh, have said that we did not need a sales regulation program because if demand was there, supply would follow. I remember I was part of the conversation with the ZEV sales regulation in Quebec, you know, and back in 2016, that's what some manufacturers were saying. Now, some manufacturers are saying, well, we cannot have regulation like that because if the demand is there, the regulation is there, they won't be able to meet demand. While the government is aiming for 40 to 45% GHG emission reduction between 2005 and 2030, actually, the light duty vehicle fleet GHG emissions have increased by 8%. And when you're talking about light duty trucks, it has increased by 40% between 2005 and 2019. So if you look at what's being proposed right now by the federal government, according to the proposed regulations, car manufacturers will have to reach 20% ZEV sales by 2026. Just for information, during Q4 2022, we were at 10.2% across Canada. We need 60%, as you mentioned, by 2030, 100% by 2035. If a company exceeds it's ZEV sales targets. It earns compliance units for ZEV excess ZEV units offered for sale. If a company misses its ZEV sales target, it, occur, it incurs a compliance deficit, which must be satisfied by obtaining credit. Compliance credit can be satisfied with bank credits by purchasing credits from another company, like we are seeing in Quebec or BC, or by creating credits, credits from contributing to design designated ZEV activities. Uh, a battery electric vehicle or a fuel cell vehicle or a plug-in hybrid vehicle with an all-electric range of more than 80 kilometers, according to what's being proposed by the government right now, would receive one credit. And a PHEV with an all-electric range of less than 80 kilometers would receive a portion of a credit. The regulated companies would earn one, one compliance credit for each contribution of $20,000 and indexed annually to the consumer price index. We could go, uh, there are a lot of details into this regulation, but fairly simply is if you sell enough cars, you get compliance credits. If you don't sell enough, you either have to buy or exchange credits. So what we at EMC have said, because there are some issues with what's being proposed by the government, is the fact that if you live in BC or Quebec, you could get double crediting, meaning that there are regulations in Quebec and BC. And right now, what we are seeing is that the government wouldn't mind the fact that they could, the manufacturers could basically use the credit both for Quebec and the federal level, meaning that Quebec and BC consumers would have, I would say, a favorable access to electric vehicles in those provinces, which means that other provinces would might have who might have uh, rebates would not be able to get them as quickly because they don't have the same crediting system. So we we think that regional distribution should be allocated to make sure that Atlantic Canada, the prairies, would get EVs as well. We think that penalties for non-compliance right now. There are criminal sanctions, uh, criminal sanctions under SEPA uh, is uh, the legal enforcement. But we think that we need to find a way for companies to have to pay a penalty. So we are proposing that uh, we have a credit clearance mechanism as a last resort uh, to make sure that uh, we have uh, a predictable finance, financial consequence for non-compliance. Uh, the credit lifespan we think that the credit lifespan should be, which can be banked, should be limited to three years. And uh, we think that we should reduce credits and compliance caps for PHEV sales. All in all, 
we are in favor of the ZEV sales regulation program as presented by the federal government, but we think that there are some loopholes in it. One of them being the fact that ZEV-related activities, since they, are, they have not been defined, could be anything. So let's say you want to bring your cars to an EV show. Well, do you get credits for that? This is something that we don't have an answer to yet. So uh, these are my opening remarks. Thanks very much for that explanation, Daniel. Stephen, your company is lobbying the government to enforce a greenhouse gas emissions reduction rather than the mandating of the sale of the zero emissions vehicles that Daniel just described. I believe that you're offering to reduce the carbon dioxide emissions of Toyota's entire fleet by a similar 60% by 2030. How would that work? And why do you think that's a better solution than simply making ZEVs mandatory? Well, let, let me just answer the second question first. I think Danielle's done an excellent job of explaining the complexity of a ZEV mandate. And quite frankly, back when Quebec introduced their ZEV mandate, I went to Quebec and said, I think you're, you're on, the wrong, um, on the wrong plan. And I expect in the early years of a ZEV mandate, you'll actually see carbon emissions from the fleet grow. I was told by Quebec at the time that was an unlikely scenario, but in fact, that's exactly what happened. And so the issue, I think, as between Danielle and me, isn't about the outcome. I think we both want to drive out carbon emissions from the, from, from the on-road fleet. The issue is, how do you get there? And, um, you know, when, when we look at uh, the federal ZEV mandate, it never actually gets you to zero emissions. It gets you to a future where 20% of your fleet can be the plug-in hybrids that, um, that Danielle's talked about. But because we've separated cars from the energy they run on, uh, you're not ever closing the loop in terms of the carbon emissions from transportation. So I know you'll get into this later on, but e-fuels and all sorts of other technologies are gonna be important, I think, if we're gonna be able to meet that, that carbon-free future. In any event, for right now, my view is this. Um, if we, you know, if we have a scenario where we're trying to drive out carbon emissions as soon as possible and as effectively as possible, you want to make sure that you're looking at the, uh, the carbon averages out of the entire fleet at the same time and moving as quickly as you possibly can to take old technologies out of the market and replace them with, with newer, more, uh, more efficient technology. You also want to understand I think that uh, this is a revolution that ultimately requires the consumer to be a partner with us in, in making it happen. And it, it just, we won't get to those targets if customers aren't prepared to buy the technologies that we're, we're offering. And so that means that uh, we not only have to have the infrastructure and supply chains in place to be able to you know, build and support the vehicles of the future, but it means in the meantime that affordability and choice become important issues for, for consumers. If you focus simply on outcome, but let the technologies compete against each other, you get the lowest cost uh, outcomes for the consumer and you'll get the fastest reductions in carbon emissions. But if you start playing with the details of regulation as so often happens, then you build in loopholes, things don't happen, or you get perverse outcomes as we currently do with the federal GHG rule where vehicles actually became bigger and heavier and less, less uh, economical in terms of their total energy use. So um, focus on the GHG emissions, you'll get to the right outcome and you'll do it fast. Okay, thanks a lot, Stephen. Uh, good counterpoint. Carl, uh, your company Porsche is exploring the benefits of synthetic fuel. 
Uh, to start us off on this, can you explain to us what synthetic fuel is? How is it made? And why should we consider it as fully green? Yeah, David, thank you for these questions. The, to be precise, we deal with synthetic fuels, which are produced with the help of renewable energy, uh, because you, you can also uh, um, produce it with, uh, with fossil energy. So, but this is not, not we, uh, where we are heading on. Uh, we call it e-fuels, uh, and it's made out of hydrogen, carbon dioxide, uh, out of the air and renewable energy, uh, and this is needed for the production. Uh, the energy can be hydropower, wind power, or solar power. And with the hydrogen and the CO2, we can produce e-methanol in the first step, which is already a liquid energy carrier, and we can easily transport or store it. Uh, and in the second step, uh, we produce raw gasoline with a so-called methanol to gasoline process. And uh, this fuel can already be used as a kind of drop-in fuel to replace uh, fossil fuel, fossil gasoline. Uh, and if you want to use it directly in the car, you have to do a little upgrade to meet the current specification at the fuel station. When the fuel is burned, uh, we will emit, emit not more uh, carbon dioxide than we uh, than we captured before uh, when we produce it. And therefore we have a, a kind of a carbon cycle, uh, but we anyway talk about almost CO2 neutral because the carbon footprint of the production facility has also been taken into account. But this is, uh, has also been done uh, in the case of producing renewable electricity. So basically, if I'm understanding it correctly, the a car running on synthetic fuel still puts out carbon dioxide, but all the carbon dioxide it puts out has come been previously scrubbed from the atmosphere. So it's basically net zero. Is that correct? Exactly. So what what we are producing uh, is still uh, hydrocarbons, and it's the in the same uh, in the same condition like the fossil fuel. Uh, there is basically no difference from the chemical point of view but what we do is the hydrogen is uh, is green uh, the, the, the the hydrogen which is used in these hydrocarbons is uh, made out of out of water uh, it's a green hydrogen and the co2 is uh, is uh, uh, for the use it's um, filtered out of the air so that we have uh, renewable components and then we have this this carbon cycle Oh, that's a great explanation. Thanks very much, Carl. Francis, a lot of people are wondering whether we can produce enough electricity to power all the electric cars of the future. Uh, I noticed in your submission to the government regarding these new rules that the proposal's regulatory impact analysis statement, that's a mouthful, thinks that, yes. <laughs> that there will be just a 4.8% increase in electrical demand by 2050 as the result of electric vehicles. On the other hand, you also say that Natural Resources Canada says the number might be as much as 22.6%. Uh, so which is it? I mean, a 5% increase does seem a little low to power, what, about 28 million electric vehicles that will be on the road in 2050? Yeah, thank you for that, David. So so which is it? Um, listen, we're, you know, uh, in this instance, we're projecting out to 2050 here. So I can I think I can safely assure you 
that it will be neither of these. It is, let's face it, it's a bit of a mug's game to project the actual change in demand 9,768 days into the future. But questioning the assumptions in models, it's all part of the regulatory consultation process. You know, we also said something else in that submission. We said the federal government must continue to support and fund electricity projects. Now, this is important because two weeks after we put in the submission, we had the federal budget that came down, which essentially signals that electricity is a public good, and it's something that the federal government is indeed willing to fund in a big way. So, you know, make no mistake, this is a game changer. Meeting our greenhouse gas emissions uh, targets is absolutely possible. And we're working with governments to get there. But to get there, we need to move quickly in some key areas. At the federal level, we need clear rules around decarbonization. And we need a way to move through the project permitting and approval processes to ensure that good projects get built. We need to do it on, on timelines that meet our goals. And we need to continue to support to make sure that we can keep uh, electricity affordable for customers. So these issues were addressed in last week's federal budget. And it signaled that these things are achievable. And it was a transformative budget that uh, I think will help us meet the goals of decarbonizing the electricity grid and the Canadian economy while addressing affordability for electricity customers and preserving reliability. But the work isn't done yet, uh, but we can achieve it. And after last week, I think we're moving in the right direction. Prior to the federal budget, when I was asked, you know, where are we uh, on the path to the energy transition, to use a car analogy, uh, as somebody who drives with a stick, I, I would say we were in standard, but we were in, uh, in neutral. I think we've moved into second gear, um, but we still have a long way to go. Okay, thanks. A quick follow-up, uh, Francis. I don't know much about electric uh, grids at all, but I do. what I do know is that you don't build for average loads. To prevent the brownouts, you need to plan for peak usage. For car drivers in Canada, that's Labor Day, when everyone is filling up basically at the same time. Heck, uh, server stations on Ter- Ontario's 401 have lineups for hours, and they have 16 pumps. What will those peak rush hours do to our grid, and how do we prepare that infrastructure for the peak, not the average loads? Yeah, yeah, no. A really good question, but, uh, but you know, first off, like, lineups for hours? I, I, I guess I'm lucky I don't drive on, on the 401 as much. Um, you know, like, I haven't seen lineups for more than a few minutes since 1973, um, but, you know, I know this is a driving event. So, you know, if you're if you're lining up for hours, you might be thinking about doing something other than lining up for hours uh, to, to do that. But seriously, the issue is, is what uh, are the processes for electricity companies in Canada to plan and to build the infrastructure that's going to supply customers with clean, reliable and affordable power? So if you look at, you know, jumping back, look at the end of the 19th century, the greatest environmental concern we had at the time was manure. You know, experts were predicting that, that New York would be buried in manure from the millions of horse car trips that were taken throughout the city. And London faced this manure crisis of 1894. But the rapid adoption of the automobile completely changed that paradigm. You know, that the adoption of the automobile was a great example of Wright's law that states uh, that the, cumulative, the, the, the cost of a unit decreases uh, as a function of cumulative production, which is a fancy way of saying that the market has a way of adapting to rapid shifts in technology. And the cars, they're not all coming all at once. We're not going to wake up one day next week and everybody has a, a, an EV in their driveway and every single car is going to have to charge up. There was, a, there was a time when it was a lot easier, for example, to find a place to get a horseshoe than it was to buy gas. And 
when more cars uh, replaced horses, we adapted. You know, even into the 19, into the 2040s, internal combustion vehicles that were bought before 2035 are still going to be on the road. Um, so it is a gradual uh, transition that we're heading towards. And, you know, my Jeep Wrangler uh, is a dozen years old, but I plan on driving it for a dozen more summers at least and probably beyond 2035. So we're looking at something that will be far more gradual uh, in terms of this rollout. Okay, uh, thanks for that, Francis. Um, Daniel, the major criticism of ZEV mandate is that it gives some automakers an advantage. Um, I did some back of the napkin calculations and figured out that an automaker, uh, let's just pretend it was one of Detroit's big three, could make the proposed 60% uh, ZEV deadline by 2030, but because of the remaining gas guzzling ice powered cars in its fleet, not have cut its CO2 emissions by 60%. Is that not a reason to, uh, to force companies to cut greenhouse gases specifically rather than mandating ZEVs? Actually, it doesn't have to be either or, it can be both. So, where I agree with Stephen is the fact that you know, this footprint regulation to me makes no sense because it's creating a huge loophole. And uh, you're right, Stephen, when you mentioned that. But where I'm a bit concerned is the fact that many traditional car manufacturers are saying that Canada, instead of following its own ZEV sale regulation pathway, so the line with the US EPA regulation that's going to be out anytime soon. So if we have the same, the same loophole in the US, will we replicate the loophole in Canada, which will create the same problem? So that's why we say that we agree with the fact that we have to have some uh, e uh, GHG emission regulation, but we think that ZEV sales regulation as well will enforce it to make it faster and more efficient. You know, when uh, Stephen mentioned the fact that, you know, GHG emissions in Quebec increased in the first few years of the regulation, uh, even though there were more electric cars on the road, it's because there's actually more gas cars that have been added to the fleet than the all of electric cars in the same period. So that's that's another topic. But to me, the point is that we have to make sure that we keep in mind, because Francis, I'm surprised you didn't mention this, but 83% uh, of Canadian electricity production right now is non-emitting. And we are aiming to 100% renewable or non-emitting by 2035, which means that if you buy, I would say, more efficient gas vehicles between now and 2035, they will still keep emitting between now and 2035, even though they are more efficient. If you buy more and more electric cars, if the grid gets closer and closer to zero emission, what we'll have is a lot, will be a lot cleaner fleet of cars on the road in Canada than just with by working with GHG emission regulation. So to me, we need we don't need one or the other, we need both. And close the loophole. I agree, Stephen. Okay. So Stephen. I understand your concern for efficient reduction of CO2 um, uh, during the transition to zero emissions, but aren't proponents of the ZEV uh, mandate correct in pointing out that come 2035, all vehicles will have to meet zero emissions standards, whether we mandate ZEVs or progressively reduce the allowable carbon dioxide emissions to zero? Aren't we splitting hairs a bit here? No, because in fact, what's happened is if you look at the draft federal regulation, it doesn't ever actually get you to zero. Um, and so um, I, I think if we're all going to be honest with each other and, and the aim here is to drive carbon out of transportation, 
then you have to look at it from a GHG standpoint and say that your end game is zero, not a ZEV, but zero. And that's where the, this discussion around e-fuels and other technologies is so important, because if you're going to be able to get to that point, you need affordable, flexible alternatives that are available to people who tow things, who live in places where the grid isn't as robust as, uh, as others, or where you're living in a, in a remote community where um, you know, the, the grid continues to be powered by, in some cases, diesel generators. So um, I, I think it's really important for us to say, this is a, you know, it's a, climate change is a grave issue. Let's deal with it. And the way to deal with it is to look at, um, at uh, greenhouse gases. The other, the other thing I just want to say in passing on, on the subject of, of you know, why GHGs went up in, uh, in Quebec, Danielle's absolutely right. Um, GHG is a function of carbon kilometers driven. So if the fleet's larger, then on average, you're going to have more emissions. But something, something else was going on that was really important at that time. It was, it was something that the Quebec government I don't think was tuned into, which was a shift from small cars in Quebec to SUVs. Yep. And um, the result of that was that the average emissions per vehicle were, were growing. So that was, a, that was a shift in consumer tendencies, but it was also driven by regulatory changes that, uh, that, that permitted that to happen. So that's all I'm saying is the more complex, the more clockwork a regulation becomes, the, the greater the likelihood that you end up with with unintended consequences. Nobody can argue with zero emissions. Um, you know that, that that's easily measured, and uh, and it gets you to the to the finish line. But how many technologies you have, how robust the infrastructure is that supports those technologies, and the way that we deploy um, the you know our our raw material development and, and other parts supply into the creation of those vehicles is all going to be important in terms of getting uh, consumer choice for you know, a wide range of different types of vehicles and, and at a price point that people can afford. Um, okay, thanks, Stephen. Um, Carl, um, I think from your prior explanation, we understand how a synthetic gasoline can produce net zero tailpipe emissions. But how realistic is the mass production of syngas? How efficient is the progress? How much electricity does it need? And can it be used in ordinary ice-powered cars? More importantly, how much does it cost now to produce a liter of e-fuel? And what are your best projections for the future cost of, of, of the fuel you're creating out of thin air? Yeah, from a technical point of view, it's absolutely realistic. Most of the used technologies are well known. For example, the, the electrolyzer or the methanol to uh, gasoline process. Methanol to gasoline process was invented by ExxonMobil in the 1970s. So it's 50 years old te uh, technology. Uh, this is not, not really uh, the, the challenge. To produce one, one liter of e-fuels, we need about 20 kilowatt hours of uh, renewable energy. This is a lot of energy and the, the efficiency is not the best, let's say like that. Um, and therefore we should not do that in areas where uh, renewable energy is short. We should do it in areas where renewable energy uh, is available in abundance. For example, in Europe, renewable energy is not available in that volume we need. 
uh, and therefore it makes absolutely sense to use it directly in in battery electric vehicles because we have the best efficiency if you uh, if you are in that situation uh, this is i think this is clear E-fuels should be produced in regions where uh, renewable energy is, is available and it's not needed by other industries. Uh, we have this pilot plant uh, built together with our partners in, in southern of Chile. There is no industry, there are no people, there is no, no use for this energy. And uh, from our point of view, this is the, 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 the best way to get uh to get um, um, access to this energy to do this with a liquid energy carrier e-fuels which are able to meet the current specification at, at the gas station uh, can be used in every existing car so you don't have uh, to do any modification neither hardware nor software so you can the, the car will not uh, recognize whether you use the e-fuel or a fossil fuel there is no need to change anything and regarding the production costs, for sure, it will, be rem it will remain cheaper to drill holes in the ground and get uh, and use the, the fossil fuel and the fossil energy. But we should also be aware about the additional costs regarding the climate change. And if you add this on the fossil fuel, we are uh, quite sure that regarding the price we pay for e-fuels, we will be uh, competitive before 2030. But, uh, and uh, the main lever is uh, to get into high volumes, to, into high scale, and this helps to decrease the costs. Um, will it also be important, Carl, um, to get favorable treatment for the government and not be hit by carbon taxes? I mean, uh, isn't the affordability of synthetic gas dependent on not paying various carbon taxes and and all of the other tariffs that are put on gasoline? So from my point of view, it should be a fair tax. Uh, and this should take into account the climate impact and not, not the CO2 uh, emission, but the climate impact. So a uh, fossil fuel has a, a big climate impact because uh, it will put new carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Uh, E-fuels will, uh, if, if we have this carbon cycle, it will, it will not put uh, new CO, uh, CO2 into the atmosphere. And this should be taken into account uh, regarding the taxation for fuel. Um, Francis, whatever the increase in electricity demand that EVs will create, how will we produce all that new energy? Um, how much increase will we need um, every year? After all, to make this work, any new electrical generation will have to be zero emissions. Um, so how much electricity will we have to produce to fill all our green promises? And how are we equipped to make that necessary upgrade? Yeah. Um... The, the the projections um, that, that we've seen, uh, and there's a number of folks that have, that have put together these predictions, but, you know, for example, the Canadian Climate Institute uh, is talking about a doubling or tripling of, of the electricity system, uh, but, you know, certainly a, a doubling of our, our clean electricity generation uh, by 2050. And, and we have those two targets, right? The first target is, is uh, a net zero electricity system by 2035. 
and then essentially using electricity to to uh, uh, to decarbonize the rest of the economy by 2050, which brings us to that doubling uh, of uh, our clean electricity generation. Now, um, doubling the uh, electricity generation by 2050, it sounds like a daunting task, right? Uh, double what we have uh, by 2050. But, um, you know, as I said earlier, like that, the demand increases uh, that we will see from now out to 2050 are going to be gradual. They will be coming online gradually. And also, you know, when you simply do the math, um, what does doubling mean between now and 2050 um, in, in that time frame? Well, it's 3% a year. Um, you know, so so like 3% a year uh, is, it isn't daunting. But the trick is we actually have to do it. And we have to do it every single year, and we have to continue to 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 build uh, the system out at that rate, and continue with that accelerate, uh, accelerated rate of, of roughly three percent a year as the demand increases as uh, as we we head out. And you know, in terms of of David, in terms of what uh, you know, what that future electricity system is going to look like, where are we going to get those those kilowatts? It's going to be an all of the above um, future. Uh, right. The, the only way that we're we're actually going to be able to produce that much uh, non-emitting electricity is if we kind of go all in on wind and solar and nuclear and hydro and tidal and probably hydrogen and climate and, and carbon capture and utilization and more transmission to be able to connect all of this stuff and customer solutions, including you know, rooftop solar and, and, and probably some technologies that we haven't even thought of yet. Uh, but it will be a, a, an all of the above future to be able to 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 get there. But again, th th this is not a real stat. We're not going to switch from today to tomorrow where the entire economy turns on on its uh, you know on its heels. This is going to be a gradual evolution uh, between now and and 2050. Uh, I suspect uh, you'd have to be pretty optimistic to think any of our governments will stick at increasing anything three percent per year for the next uh, 20 or so years. But I, I well, the good question. news is the good news is the the the, the governments aren't uh, building the system. Uh, it is it is the electricity sector. And this is an electricity sector that has, uh, you know, for more than 100 years supplied uh, reliable electricity that, that is, has been the backbone of our economy. We're $30 billion of uh, Canadian GDP, but we're the first $30 billion because uh, every other sector relies on electricity and it has been done reliably up until now. But yeah, we're not, we're not talking about the government building the system. We're talking about uh, the people that have been doing this for, for uh, a century, uh, continuing to do what they do and continuing to build it out. Okay, thank you very much. Daniel, lots of cars have been successfully electrified in the last few years. Range has increased, so have charging speeds. However, challenge still remains. And I'm going to use electric pickups as a metaphor right now. Uh, numerous evaluations have recently posted articles about full-sized electric vehicles not being able to tow trailers much more than 150 kilometers. That's despite them already having the largest, by far, ba batteries in the business. Even a doubling of batteries wouldn't get us to much more than 300 kilometers. And uh, as just an example of the challenges ahead for a ZEV future, how do we give those specific consumers the towing ability they now take for granted from gas cars? Well, uh, first, I would like to add something to what Francis just said, because when we're talking about 2050, we're not just talking about the increase in electric cars that will that will need more electricity. Actually, uh, According to Transport Canada, there'll be 40% more light-duty cars between now and 2050. 
And the population of Canada most probably will increase between 35 and 45%. So most of the electricity won't go to cars or trucks. It will go to buildings and industry and commercial uh, commercial uh, sites. So that's one thing to keep in mind. Most of the electricity won't go to transportation. Regarding uh, pickup trucks, I think that's a very important question. You have to keep in mind that if we go back 12 years, between 2008 and 2020, uh, the volumetric density uh, for energy for battery electric vehicles increase eightfold. We expect uh, energy density to increase approximately by 100% between now and 2030 to 2035, which means that with a battery the same size, you'll get double the range. Or if you make the battery smaller, you'll get more range because you will have less weight. So as technology improves, it's going to be a lot easier to have battery electric pickup trucks be able to tow uh, anything. That's one thing. The other part of the equation is the fact that if you go back five years, a fast charger was a 50 kilowatt charger. Now we're talking about 500 kilowatt chargers and one megawatt chargers. And I, I saw that last year when I was in Norway because... Keep in mind that 1% of the fleet in Canada is electric. In Norway, in June of 2022, it was 23%. So there they have a whole area of fast chargers and super fast chargers that already are installed. But as time goes by, as time goes by, we will get closer and closer and closer to a system where we are approximately... Uh, similar to what will look what a gas station a gas station will look like, but we'll be able to charge at home. But when we are on the road, we'll have fast chargers that are going to be a lot more powerful than what we have right now, which will mean we'll need less chargers, more powerful chargers, and more efficient vehicles. If you look at the Ford F one fifty Lightning, for instance, it is not a battery electric design truck; it's a gas pickup truck in which they put a battery in. So it has not been designed. So when we see new pickup trucks coming to market, they should be a lot more efficient than this one. But I agree, more work needs to be done to make towing with electric trucks or cars more efficient. Thanks for that, Daniel. Stephen, I'm going to continue on this theme and use pickups as the example of the challenges facing the auto industry. So let's just say the world doesn't work out quite as optimistically as Daniel says, if batteries will continue to be challenged to provide the towing ability that a truck owner expects, what is the solution? I, I know that Toyota is already capable of producing hybrid and plug-in hybrids that can reduce greenhouse gas emissions. But come 2035, even those are going to be illegal. So if it's not batteries or any form of hybrid, hybrid what will power the pickup trucks of the future? So the the reality of this is that I, I believe, and you know, you can see it built into the into the federal proposal, that plug-in hybrids have a have a life beyond beyond 2035, but they have a life beyond 2035 if you're using e-fuels. Um, in terms of uh, of what you do with um, with heavier vehicles like like trucks, whether it's a pickup truck or if you go up to medium or heavy duty. That's where this discussion about other types of options, including fuel cells or direct hydrogen combustion come into play because they're a, they're a better solution in terms of the weight in the, in the vehicle and they drive out other, certain other types of cost from the system. Uh, 
So when we talk about having different technologies for different use, it's not because you have a technology that you know is fighting head to head with battery electric in order to have marketplace supremacy. It's that um, it, you know different problems require different tools, and um, you know lightweight uh, fuel solutions are better in in those heavyweight applications than uh, than large battery packs, and they certainly will keep the cost down. So I've got a big, a, a big yep, go ahead. Uh, there was a uh, National Research Council report on battery electric long haul vehicles. And I think it would be interesting for people to look at it because what it's, it showed is that the vast majority of transportation with battery electric long haul trucks can do the trick. And for the 10 to 20% of the difference, it would be most probably e-fuels or hydrogen. But already battery electric truck can do most of the merchandise uh, transportation. So, so Danielle, I'm not suggesting that there isn't a role for battery electric and trucking, but what I am telling you is this, the more weight you put in the truck, the less payload you've got. And so hydrogen is a better solution if you're looking to maximize the return on your, on your, on your I, payload I, cycle. I will send you the report and you'll see. I, I understand the report, but I'm, I'm just telling you, I also know where the, where the cost curves overlap on battery electric and fuel cell. So, um, Again, if you try to, uh, you know, if all you got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. In this particular case, battery electric is not the best solution for everything. Okay. Okay. Good enough. Um, uh, Carl, I've been asked, uh, um, wondering what to um, ask you for quite some time about this. I, I'm, I've been excited about this question ever since uh, I got news that you're joining us on the panel. Uh, how did you, and by you, I mean the German auto industry, manage to convince the European authorities, the most adamant proponents of electrification, to consider synthetic gas as zero emissions because they've recently changed their regulations? So um, seriously, how did you do this? And and how what can we learn in Canada about this, Carl? Well, I think what, what we try to do is not to convince someone uh, but what what we did is share information uh, and facts. And uh, with the pilot plant, uh, for at least what Porsche did, we showed that uh, it's possible to produce e-fuels. And uh, we have the feeling that the politicians uh, in the end uh, seem to have understood our arguments. So they did not change completely the, the regulation but they added this option for e-fuels. Um, but in the end, we should remember what's, what's all about. It's reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions and it's uh, uh, overall in the transport sector. Uh, this is, this is where, where we should uh, look for. The base for this is to switch to renewable energies. And if we keep this in mind, and then look at road traffic and individual mobility, the answer is quite simple. We have to switch to renewable energy and abandon fossil fuels. And in the case of new cars, we the focus is still on battery powered vehicles, uh, also at Porsche. We did not change our mind uh, right now. The challenge here is to reduce the CO2 footprint during the production by increasingly using renewable energy 
and also the electricity for the operation of the vehicles must uh, be increasingly renewable. And we are on the way here in Europe, but we are still a long way from reaching our goal. And regarding cars with combustion engines, we have to focus on the use phase and replace fossil fuels and introduce renewable fuels as fast as possible. And what we see is that uh, the transformation to electric vehicles is far too slow to the fleet renewal, uh, which is only 6% per year. And this will take too long to, to make big steps regarding decarbonization. And therefore, we think that uh, e-fuels are a necessary addition, not a replacement, but an addition to the electromobility. And doing both electrification and renewable uh, synthetic fuels, uh, this is from our point of view, the fastest, the fastest option we can do. And to accelerate, we need regulatory frameworks that can, that really accelerate the ramp up of renewable energies and their use, enable the large production uh, volumes and capacities and make mobility more affordable. And with our approach, we don't just think about our vehicles, but about other transport areas and beyond the transport sectors as well, because e-fuels are not only for, for cars, for, for sports cars or whatever, it's also for other transport sectors like aviation, shipping, uh, or the, the heavy duty sector. Thanks very much. Um, Francis, here's my last question about Electricity Canada's submission to the government. In it, you mentioned the upward pressure on electricity rates that has not been factored into the official cost-benefit analysis. Now, I'm like most people. Not only do I not understand my electric bill, I have no clue um, how the rates are set. Could you walk us through a little bit of that, and but most especially uh, focusing on how that extra demand of electric cars could affect those rates in the future? And, and please be gentle. I'm confused enough already about my hydro bill. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, uh, and and yeah, your 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 concern about the complexity of of setting rates is shared by by many people. But listen, as as I said earlier, you know, two weeks ago, after our, two weeks after our submission uh, on on the ZEVs, we had that federal budget that that committed a dollar out of every eight in anticipated new spending. Uh, specifically to clean electricity and clean electricity projects. And that really does shift the framework considerably when it comes to upward pressure on electricity rates. So, you know, what we'd said two weeks prior to the budget uh, doesn't necessarily apply. But, you know, since you asked about how rates are set, so electricity bills and in 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 a lot of places in the country they're not called hydro bills that's a that's a you know there's 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 many spots in the country where hydro isn't uh, isn't the main source so electricity bills they reflect the cost of building and maintaining the system in your area those costs are approved by a provincial or a territorial regulator plus the cost of actually generating the electricity now from your 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 earlier high, uh, highway 401 reference I'm assuming that you're in Ontario, so you may have some additional charges just to further complicate the bill for things like, uh, you know, regulatory charges and global adjustments. But in the main, the rates are set by regulators and every customer, rich or poor, pays the same rate per kilowatt hour to 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 support that. So 
using federal dollars because of uh, the new budget to fund investments to meet these federal objectives of reducing GHGs means that at least um, you know some of uh, of the of, of the cost is going to be offset, and we will see you know some uh, addressing of, of concerns about affordability. So what the budget is doing is decoupling some of the infrastructure costs as we go forward. The federal government sees a role for itself in in helping build out electricity infrastructure. Given that the decarbonization of the economy will be achieved through electrification, and this is you know kind of similar to what the government has been doing now for a couple of decades with respect with respect to uh, to public transit infrastructure, so the same kind of dynamic is at play. So okay. the intention here, but in the you know in the in the end, the intention here is is really to address affordability for end customers. So. Uh, for example, we've got this new electricity uh, investment tax credit. The government actually ties that to the reduction in price for consumers so that the dollars that are put in by the federal government are passed on to the consumer. So what that means is that we double or triple the amount of electricity we need. The federal government will be putting dollars into the mix so that you know all of those costs don't all end up on the bills that customers get each month. Okay, thanks very much, Francis. I'm going to try a few viewer questions now. Um, Terry, an automotive facility owner, asks, do you feel that the government will change the 2035 date when they realize it's not realistic? Um, I'm going to give this one to you, Daniel, um, with a bit of nuance and my own uh, question on this. What happens if in 2035, uh, if some provinces, and I'm thinking Ontario, BC, and Quebec here, hit the 100% target, but other provinces like the prairies, Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba, they suck at some low number, say 25 or 30%. What are we going to do at that point in time? Honestly, I don't know. I'm not in politics anymore. <laughs> uh, but uh, but I, think that, uh, I think that the fact that we will get more EVs on the market will make the technology a lot more efficient as time goes by. And I mean, from your purely economical point of view, it's going to make a lot more sense. It won't make much sense for most people to buy a gas car because it's going to be too expensive. Um, so to me, the issue is about making sure that we have more cars. If you look at what happened in the UK and Germany, if you go back three and a half years ago, uh, they were below 5% ZEV sales. Now, UK is at 40%. Germany is at 55%. Uh, and when we where we have regulated markets in Canada, Quebec is at 14.6. Uh, BC is already at 20%. So I think that obviously some markets will go faster than others. But I think that the technology will make sure that uh, we get to that point. I'm very confident about that. Okay. Um, I've met some Albertans. They're a lot less uh, confident that uh, the province will go electric, but we'll move on. Stephen, Steve uh, is curious about hydrogen-fueled ICEs, fuel cell synthetic and synthetic gas. I'm curious as well. Let's pretend for a moment that our government did get more inclusive with alternative fuels, as long as the cars were genuinely net zero. What do you think the percentage split will be in 2035 between BEVs, fuel cell, hydrogen-powered uh, ICEs, and synthetic gas? Where do you... Is is our BEV still the majority of the plurality? What's That's the breakdown? That's a tough one. That's a tough one, Stephen. <laughs> well, you know, it is and it isn't. I, I'd like to like, I'd like to separate this into two parts. One is the new car marketplace, and one is the used car marketplace. Yeah. 
Um, in the new car marketplace, my prediction would be that battery electric vehicles hold the lion's share of, of, um, of the light duty market. And that's not to say that uh, they're going to be ideal for everybody. And I do also think that the cost of new vehicles is going to, is going to rise because most of the cost of a battery electric vehicle is in the materials content in the vehicle. It's not a labor cost. It's not a technology cost per se, although there's a chemistry cost. Um, it, it, it comes down to this question of what does it take for us to get the raw materials that we need processed and then built into, um, into components for vehicles that we'll build. And there's a lot of complexity between regulation and also trade policy right now that is forcing um, the supply chain to ramp um, at a very hot rate and it's ca causing a lot of extra cost. So I think that uh, as we move forward, um, nonetheless, it's going to be easier for a lot of people to adopt uh, battery electric vehicles into their lives. But that really comes down to how quickly, not only does the energy, so the, the electricity supply itself increase, but how quickly the infrastructure, particularly at the local level in towns and cities improves. Um, the people are only going to adopt the technology as it becomes, a, becomes convenient for them to, to use it. Now, beyond that, I would say uh, there's a very uh, real use case for hydrogen fuel cells and light duty in the fleet space. So, you know, we, we talk about light duty car, light duty vehicles in terms of ownership or usership. The ownership model, I think, is going to be dominated by battery electric vehicles. The usership model, uh, there's a lot more space for hydrogen to, uh, to come into play because those hydrogen fuel cell vehicles um, have a much higher uptime up cycle. And so in heavy use uh, environments, they work well. And that's why we're doing things like our Kinto lift experiment out in, in BC. Um, so whether it's that type of ride hailing approach, whether it's courier systems, whether there's any number of other ones where you have to run vehicles 24 hours a day and they come back and are centrally fueled, that's a use case for, uh, for hydrogen. Beyond that, I think you're going to see increased um, applications for, um, for e-fuels or for direct hydrogen combustion. But again, small percentages at, in the early stages of this. And that's not a problem. The problem is if you don't allow for that diversity of, of technologies, because then you're putting all of your eggs in one basket and everything has to work perfectly in order to achieve your outcome. And that's where I think you run the risk of missing your targets in 2035 if, uh, if we don't have that redundancy built into the system. But um, if, I were, if I were betting, my bet would be on, on battery electric in the new car space. Here's the other problem. Um, just because we require certain types of new vehicles to be sold doesn't mean that consumers are going to walk away from the used car marketplace. I think the used car marketplace may continue to be dominated by internal com combustion vehicles, which is the other reason why it's important for us to have e-fuels in the market. Because it's only the e-fuels that will clean up that existing fleet. And none of the jurisdictions in Canada, whether we're talking about the feds, whether we're talking about Quebec or BC, have closed the door to, uh, to imports of, uh, of used vehicles. And we're sitting next to a market that's 10 times our size I think it's a pressure release valve that will be influencing a lot of the years between now and 2035. Okay, uh, yeah, yeah. If they can't get electric vehicles from uh, our gas vehicles from Canada, they can buy them from across the border. 
Um, and, and it doesn't doesn't take much to uh, you know for a vehicle to go from being new to used is I guess what I would say about that. Okay, um, <laughs> Carl, I got uh, time for one last question very quickly. Um, the EU is accepted in uh, synthetic fuels, and I should mention here in case everybody doesn't know, but there were, yesterday there was an international automobile manufacturers association that released a statement that more or less asked that all ZEV mandates around the world allow for synthetic fuel. So based on, you know, the growing acceptance of, of uh, synthetic fuel, uh, sort of the same question for you. What percentages of Porsches uh, that will be sold in 2035 do you think will run on synthetic fuel? Well, uh, I don't know exactly how much how the percentage will be in 2035 because our strategy uh, is... is uh, kind of 10 years, not more. Uh, okay. But the, the numbers which we have is uh, that we want to, uh, we are aiming for 50% of uh, electric, electrified powertrains uh, in 2025. This is plug-in hybrids and electric vehicles and more than 80% of pure electric vehicles in 2030. So there is uh, some, some space left uh, which mainly for Porsche is the 911. Mm -hmm. uh, and if regulation uh, allows and the customer, which is uh, the customers are, are very important with their demand, if they also uh, like to have combustion uh, engines, we will sell um, the 911 uh, as well uh, after 2035. Okay. And, just one uh, one comment regarding the 55% uh, electric vehicles in Germany. This is the, the whole amount. Uh, it's uh, plug-in hybrids, hybrids, and battery electrics as well. The pure electric vehicles in 2022 were below 20%, and the rest is plug-in hybrids. So we have uh, hybrids or plug-in hybrids with more than 30% uh, of the volume of new cars. Well, folks, uh, unfortunately, that's all the time we have uh, for today. Uh, I would like to say one thing before we go, and it's this. Everyone on this panel is working and working hard to reduce the industry's carbon impact. We may disagree on what path is the most efficient to get us to 2035, and we may not agree on what powertrains are best suited to net zero, but the goal remains the same. Reduce, if not eliminate, carbon production resulting from the automobile. I hope you found today's discussion uh, as interesting as I did. And that's all thanks to Daniel, Stephen, Carl, and Francis. My heartfelt thanks for making uh, a complicated issue so understandable. Thanks again, and have a good day.